0: Today on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, we have your week in IndyCar listener Q and A episode, and we do this every week, and I really enjoy it every week. On a personal front, hashtag me personally, which is the official hashtag of everything that I do in the podcast, because I hate redundancies. So when folks say me personally or I personally, it just makes my eyes cross. Uh, Nonetheless. I refer to my week in IndyCar listener Q and A show as my unpolished turd among all of the shows that I put out. Why? Well, keep all the mistakes, the mispronunciations, the malapropisms, because it's a true representation of who I am—a highly flawed person—and I embrace it. Hopefully, you will too. For those who are longtime listeners or even semi-new listeners. Hopefully enjoy the nonsense that we do here, all driven by your submissions coming in through Reddit, Twitter, and Facebook. If you are brand new, there are indeed far more polished Q&A type IndyCar shows. Uh, If you like things that are just really quick and tight and punchy and whatever, this is a really awesome time to say, hey... I spent a minute and a half listening to the Week in IndyCar listener Q&A and hit stop. So, yeah, we just kind of roll. It's conversational. It's easy, I hope. And there you go. The show is brought to you by Cooper Tires. Not only do they make fine tires for your road use and off-road use, but also they present the Road to Indy, which is a huge passion of mine, Junior Open Wheel Racing Something where I spent, what I think, the first 10 or so years of my career working in. First year back in 1986. So Cooper Tires. We're talking USF 2000, Indy Pro 2000, or Indy Lights. Well, they use those beautiful Cooper Tires. And they support not only young drivers coming up, next generation. They support our show. They were our very first partner kicking off the 2018 season. And here we are into year number three, the Justice Brothers. They're our other primary partner. They joined us in 2019. I've had a long, long relationship with the Justice family and just love them a whole bunch. (laughs) I just do. That's not a sponsor plug. That's just saying. The people behind the Justice Brothers automotive chemicals and lubricants and whatnot, they're just immensely decent people. So really fortunate there. TorontoMotorsports.com, they, they bring the fun to our world with stickers and t-shirts and memorabilia and all kinds of stuff. TorontoMotorsports.com would be a place to check out if you are someone who loves those things. They just sent me a care package that I didn't know was coming. Uh, it has t-shirts in it. It has some cartoon anvil protection t-shirts, something we just came up with. And also something I specifically requested, two King Hero, referring to the uh, somewhat beleaguered uh, former IndyCar driver Hiro Matsushita, uh, two King Hero hats. So, those made my day. Then finally, Bell Racing Helmets USA, speaking of hats. They make the finest in lids. And hey, I've got Kevin Savory from Savory Green Promotions calling. So I'm going to hit pause here and take this call because we've been playing phone tag. And we're back after that short interlude with our man, Kevin Savory from Green Savory Race Promotions, the fine folks who put on St. Petersburg, Mid-Ohio, Toronto, and Portland. All right, let me get back in the groove here. So thanks to all of our sponsors. Thanks to you all for sending in the questions each week. I'll just reiterate again, this is a loose and conversational format. You might have, you know, figured out that little secret here already. This week in particular really stands out. Looking at the questions compiled by our listener and friend, Tim Falkowitz. Uh, Most weeks, the questions that we get are excellent the ones y'all sent in this week might be genuinely among my all-time favorites from top to bottom. So can't wait to dive into these. Going to do that in just a minute. should also mention that we have cats. My wife and I, Shabrell, she and I, we have two cats. Uh, why am I telling you this if you've never listened before? Well, it's because Rosie, who's the younger of our two cats, just jumped up and brushed across the back of the microphone and is now trying to see if she can sniff some food from the little container uh, where my lunch once resided. And our cat Rocky, he likes to jump up and put his butt in my face. I don't know why. Seriously, they don't do this when I'm doing other podcasts. They know something about the Week in IndyCar, and they just add to the mayhem. They're my furry cartoon anvils, you could almost say. Uh, We're going to get to your Q&A in just a moment. I insert a timestamp where that starts in the description for each episode knowing that for some folks they don't want to hear the nonsense up front they just want to get to the Q&A so if you're that person take a look in the description it'll tell you where to fast forward to happiness will reign but your questions overall man they're a lot of fun about 2,000 words here 2,052 uh, we usually get through about a thousand per hour I don't know if I'm going to be able to do all of them but I'm going to do my best to get through them once we finish talking about a couple things of interest here so jimmy johnson just completed his first indycar test have spoken with our man scott dixon and mike hull from the chip ganassi racing team also spoke with jay fry and they were really really excited about the quality of jimmy's test there's no lap times provided it's by intent Mike Hull and Dixie also said, "Look, the conditions were far different than what we had at the Indianapolis Grand Prix, the GMR Grand Prix on July 4th. There's no rubber down. The there's just a number of differences to consider. Differences maybe uh, to consider as well. So a straight lap time comparison not really an option, but I asked all of them if Jimmy were to be entered in one of the season-ending or almost season-ending Harvest Grand Prix races at Indy on the road course? Would you, A, feel confident he would qualify, be fast enough to make the show, and, B, if so, do you think he would be an actual, I don't want to say threat for a win, but his presence would be felt on track? Jay Fry, Mike Hole, Dixie all said yes, and it wasn't blowing smoke, it was real. So, again, do would I expect him to qualify more than 20th or 21st out of 23, 24, 25 cars? No. Heck, he might even be last. But for your very first race, that might not be uh, the worst thing in the world. But they seem to think the guy had something, something real, and while you wouldn't expect that to all manifest in race one in his IndyCar career, if Dixie is like legitimately pumped about what this guy can do in an IndyCar and Mike Hole, who has seen, I mean, it's hard to even keep track of how many drivers he's been there with for their very first IndyCar test, whether they're pups doing number one, uh, coming out of junior open wheel, or guys coming in from wherever else, there's some big names uh, where he's been there for their first test. And Mike was one who really added context to it, saying, no, the guy is for real. You can see what makes him a seven-time NASCAR champion. Different cars. The driver, though, is the one piece of continuity in those skills and the approach and the talent. They are absolutely transferable. So that... Then also Dixie just talking about his learning method of show him something in data, show him something in video and say, "Uh, you see how you're doing that here, do that different, whatever, and the guy would go right out and do it. And that is not unique for a veteran in any series. To the guy or gal or whomever that's done a year or two in IndyCar or Cup or whatever, you can do those things because they've driven the car enough to know exactly what changes need to happen based on data or video. When you're talking about a guy who has, you know, 20 minutes in the car, (laughs) an hour in the car, and you keep asking more and more of him after every run that he does, okay, we're going to stop and look at this data says that see the video here let me show you how this curbing don't do that oh you can break a little bit later here you can pick up the throttle there but you need to adjust what you're doing with the steering if you're getting on the throttle here and such and have the person go right out and do those exact things that's just not common that's not something that good but not great drivers can do and most race car drivers are good not great the great differentiate themselves we know in nascar jimmy is great well uh, as everyone shared today in my calls they were very clear in saying this guy's talent is non-series specific uh and so that excites me that really excites me so can't wait to uh Actually, I'm supposed to talk with Dixie a little bit more um, here on Wednesday when this is probably going up. Um, another quick note. Day before at Indianapolis, Miles Rowe, the kid that Will Power found, African American kid that Will Power spotted in karting a couple years back, really thought he had the talent to go far. Ran out of money, lost contact, reconnected with him recently, suggested him to Roger Penske as someone who might be the first driver to test in IndyCar and IMS's new race for diversity and change program. Uh, he did similar things on Monday to what Johnson did in terms of impressing folks. Now he had done a little bit, uh, of junior open wheel driving, basically non downforce cars in the Lucas oil series in Florida. I believe it was Florida. Uh, but that The last time, I think it was 2018, and I believe he had one day in a USF 2000 car, 2017, 2018. But by and large, the kid had been out of a car since 2018. He'd done some karting since then, trained with power a little bit. But getting back in, figuring out downforce and speed and all those things with the Cape Motorsport team, boy, power was uh, really enthused about what Miles demonstrated and although Miles and I had communicated by, by a, by a, via maybe, uh, DM, uh, we had our first opportunity to speak after the test. And as I wrote on the good old social medias, that might be the sweetest kid I have ever spoken with, uh, on the road to Indy. Um, just like <laughs> ridiculous. And so It's not uncommon for kids on the road to Indy to be super nice and super great, so that's not saying that they're all mean and bad people and he's the one good one. Not at all. But what you don't often get is someone who's just really sweet, really respectful, uh, a lot of misters and yes, sir, and that kind of stuff, and then also goes really fast. You don't get a lot of that duality. It's usually the real sharp, not aggressive with their tongue or actions but it's just a it's not something you come across very often i come across very often uh scott dixon is one of them uh where you go that guy is about the nicest guy you could meet uh it's funny as hell he has a really you know uh borderline sense of humor too but again just good human being plus excellent at their job at least at the very starting starting point of the road to indy looks like miles might have something to continue working with uh was excuse me emailing last night after the test with roger penske who was also very very uh, excited with how the test went so haven't heard anything formal on next steps but if i had to predict it sounds like uh they there might be something to work with and keep developing here with miles so uh, These are just really positive things for me. Knowing this kid, too, uh, is someone that really, truly is all about educating himself. Uh, someone who, he's attending film school in New York. Uh, this is a kid who's worked on film sets, been a director of photography. Apparently he's done a little tiny bit of acting, too, but uh, is really trying to educate himself more behind the scenes. Um, just some pretty cool stuff. And so I love, with all my heart, seeing that on a Monday, Miles Rowe got to be you know, someone to bring the race for equality and change to life. I loved seeing a photo that, I don't know if it was published uh, in anywhere that I saw, but not just of Miles on pit lane with Will in front of the Cape Motorsports USF 2000 car, in front of the Pagoda. It was also a really beautiful photo of Miles with his mom and dad there. And just, you know, as someone who spends a lot of his life uh, in both worlds, African-American and Caucasian-American, it's just beautiful to see a black family um, on pit lane at Indianapolis uh, with their son, uh, with skill and aptitude and charisma and, you know, all the things where you go, wow. Wow. Uh, boy, I really hope that this can become a common sight, and i don't just mean African American families through this race for equality and change, but name the dash american uh, this is something where I really hope to see young women uh, being championed and tested and hopefully promoted upwards and their you know, her mom and her dad. And it's just, it feels like there's something really good here. There's already something really good with IndyCar going on. But to see this get moving, and with a kid with a lot of potential, uh, boy, that that was just made my heart sing. And then you throw Jimmy in. I don't pretend or, or claim to know Jimmy well at all. Been fortunate to interview him three or four times. Whatever the number is. Mostly back when he was doing the Rolex 24, uh, did some other stuff with him, some magazine stuff with him, and uh, just really happy for him to see this desire be realized in IndyCar, and then to also find out that, hey, he was pretty darn good in what he did, and people who are not easy to please, uh, who are not prone to lending false praise... Another thing about Dixon, Dixon's not the guy to say, oh, yeah, it was great, if he doesn't mean it. That is not Scott Dixon, nor is Mike Hall. Even if I asked them, hey, could you give me a really sweet, juicy quote that says Jimmy Johnson's the best, um, they would say non-Christian words to me and then not. So just cool. Uh, I got to admit, feeling a bit energized here about IndyCar and uh, some of the things that have developed here just in the first two days of the week. Last quick item for you before we get rolling with the show, I know you've sent in a number of questions about the schedule changes, and that's gonna be uh yeah, I don't know if we're done. I just printed off my fifth schedule for the year, as some of you know i'm I'd put at least a hundred dollars on there being a sixth that will be needed here uh had a call with the new Laguna Seca. Track manager John Norigi on Monday morning. This was just before the announcement that the West Coast swing was being canceled. Uh, I do know that they're hoping to continue to have some of the major racing series come through, even though IndyCar won't this year. I've heard that of the remaining major series headed to Laguna, there could be one more for sure that does not. So I think they're. They're potentially facing more challenges there. Uh, I'm going to write about this hopefully tomorrow, Wednesday, when this goes up, or maybe while you're listening to this on a Wednesday. Uh, Most of the conversation that we had was about the volunteers and this new volunteer organization they're trying to put together that would allow them to hold races. So do you get a number of questions about Laguna Seca. Is it going to live? Is it going to fall apart? Is the new guy in charge? Uh, The Antichrist? No, he's not the Antichrist. Um, so might have, again, some some insights worth reading there when we get all that together. Other than that, put up a story on Monday about Projected Indy 500 grid. If you haven't read that and you want to know, you might take another look at it or a first look at it. Compared some notes today with someone who's absolutely in the know, and uh, yeah, I was already totally dead solid on what i wrote that wasn't a question but it's just always interesting to hear from some other folks who maybe have a similar list if not the master list and say hey this is my projection but based on a lot of phone calls and a lot of you know asking a ton of questions of a, of a ton of people just good to hear that what was what went up uh, jives with uh, what's happening uh, what are we going to have in terms of a car count I'd say if there are odds somewhere on it being 33 and 33 only, that might be the number to put your money on. Uh, 34 is what I would love to see. That might sound obvious, but they are holding qualifying, and there's bump day, and there's all that. And if it's just a feel the 33, well, uh, no drama on qualifying weekend, on top of all the other changes that folks are having to deal with, that might not be the most awesome thing. As well, if we're able to get to 34, at least know that one person might not make the show. There is, in theory, some drama to consider, real drama, but also that sure is a really good safety net because with as crazy as things have been, if someone were to crash a smaller team were to have something bad happen and destroy a car, or can't get another, whatever it is, at risk of possibly having one car drop out, which in this 2020 year, I got to admit, it kind of feels like that could happen. Uh, the idea of having 32 cars coming out of qualifying weekend and having to maybe just stick with it or try and clue something together to get 33 yeah, there's just a part of me that says, boy, I'd love to have 34 so we have a real reason to tune in to anything after other than uh, the Fast 9 and then also just as a safety net. So that's pretty much what I got for you. I'm going to crank here for a little bit. It's 7.43 p.m. on a Tuesday. And uh, yeah, i going to get dinner going here pretty soon for Mrs. Pruitt. So let me get moving here. With your questions, as I hit the little marker in the recording, where are we going to go first? We've got Rocky here, by the way, joining us. Uh, Rosie's trying to attack something through the window here. Uh, Where are we going to go first? We're going to go with Greg Mann, M-A-N. How you doing, Greg? Hey, MP, I'm not too critical about it because we have the Corolla virus. We just finished a marathon-long sprint with IndyCar, as the popo goes by. But this last weekend seemed to be a missed opportunity for everybody with no one racing. Why not move Iowa uh, back a week? More of a question is, why would NASCAR race on opening night for baseball? Again, I'm just thankful we have anyone racing uh, in any kind of season right now, but it did seem strange to have such a gap after almost endless saturation. Well, I think we got a couple things here, Greg. I don't know if crew members would have really been fond of uh, the very brief, almost not break that they got. I realize that taking a break between Road America, a weekend off, then I guess coming back with Iowa, or maybe you're talking about, instead of doing the double header again, it wasn't explaining the question, but maybe you're talking about splitting up the double header, one Iowa race one weekend, one the next. That too might be a thing where IndyCar teams and mechanics in particular are saying are you kidding me so yeah my my first thought tends to go towards the people that make the show having been one of those folks for a little while in the past and yeah uh, I can tell you one thing brother and this is totally expected as a fan I'm one as well it was weird I did find myself hunting around for a little bit of racing last weekend because it was strange I can guarantee you the one group of people who were not looking to do more racing last weekend and probably weren't watching anything because they were snoring their behinds off. All the mechanics and engineers and truck drivers and just everybody involved in IndyCar officials. and I mean, exhausted. So, yeah, uh I think we're good. Plus, knowing that uh, getting both Iowa races done in the same weekend Gives IndyCar a couple weekends off before mid-Ohio. Well, we're now, what, two weeks away from the start of practice for the Indy 500? Teams also needed to get their Indy 500 cars ready, and so just extending thing another week would have only made that harder. So I hear you totally as a fan, just on the team side and even the series side, uh, you got a bunch of folks saying, Please, 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 please uh, give us a break. Uh, let's go to our pal Ben Cohen. Says, MP, what are your thoughts on how the 2020 season will be viewed in terms of schedule strength due to the need to include so many double headers, including one track being ran three times? I actually believe it should be viewed as more difficult due to the team's lack of testing and turnaround time to prepare cars for the second race. Also, kindly, you say thanks for all that you do and many positive thoughts for you and your wife and your family. Thank you, Ben. Great question. Couldn't tell you how this season will be viewed historically. I'm with you on the difficulty side, where where I think this might have some interesting context to look back on, see if I'm right or wrong. But we do know that some drivers tend to... Thrive in some situations, and you know, it might be a particular track or two, or just type of track where boy, they always stand out. There it could be a street racing ace, could be an oval ace, could be a whatever. We do know that in a normal IndyCar schedule, 17 races, um, what 16 events, with the Detroit doubleheader being the only double that we have. But looking at how we normally have had 17 races, five of those on ovals, maybe six, but um, definitely well less than half on ovals, you do get this interesting blend of people that thrive in some places, maybe are a little bit weak elsewhere across the whole championship, and that contributes to the championship outcome. Super obvious statement alert here. You then have some folks who are just ridiculously good everywhere, and they are the perennial championship threats: Joseph Newgarden, Scott Dixon, Will Power, Simon Pagano, you know, uh, Rossi, Hunter Ray. Rundown. There again, there's a select group of you know six, seven, eight, whatever the number is, but there's a select group that you know wherever we go, they can win. Period. And then there's some others where either because they're young and haven't done enough IndyCar races, their career is short enough to where we either haven't seen them demonstrate that or they haven't just amassed the experience to be able to do that at every race, no matter where it is. There's some question marks. Uh, Then you have some who maybe have done this long enough where you go, hey, very talented, not necessarily an all-rounder. There's nobody that fears you uh, at any or I should say every event on the calendar. Where I think this could be interesting, Ben, is when we look back at the season, we're going to say, well, we had a, a single-header oval at Texas, one race at Texas. We had a double-header at Iowa. We are going to go to the Indianapolis 500, amazing. And then we're going to have another double-header at Gateway. We're going to have pretty decent amount of oval racing in a shortened year. Assuming nothing else changes, We're going to have 14 races this year. Of those 14 races, I mean, if we're looking at how many ovals, well, all of a sudden we're kind of at almost half, you know, six of the races will be ovals. Well, that's six out of 14 compared to five out of 17. I think that's going to lend favorably to the all rounders who can deliver on ovals. And with a heavier oval slant due to the shortened season, again, it's maybe not going to be a surprise that right now, what we have on the calendar, or what we have in the points, Scott Dixon, Simon Pagino, Joseph Newgarden. uh, At Iowa, where the three of them definitely collectively had a great event, Dixon was second and fifth, Pagino was first and fourth, Joseph was fifth and first. I mean, again, just great. Some others had crazy, brutal, no fun, and some of it was their own making, some of it wasn't. Uh, Rossi, again, didn't have a great weekend, but finished sixth and eighth. That helped him boost up a ways in the points. Ryan Hunter Ray, uh, you know, he was his own cartoon anvil there, so okay. But normally, he's a guy that you are always going to count in on the ovals. Then let's just say some surprises too, to come from this Ben Jack Harvey. uh, He was boy, Texas was not good. Uh, His first time there, it spooked the poop out of him. And his result was directly what you would expect based on being scared poopless at Iowa seventh and seventh, right? I mean, that was a great weekend for the small Shank racing team and, kind of out of nowhere we're looking at a guy who had the same average finish across the two races as alexander rossi that's freaking stellar so maybe a guy like jack if he's finding a groove on the shorter ovals we'll see what he does at mid ohio obviously the indy 500 but if he can have a great weekend at gateway uh, which is not a tiny oval by any means but it's not a super speedway Again, maybe this is a thing for Jack, where in this amended schedule, uh, he might have found a little groove that otherwise, if it was just a single header at Iowa and a single header, I don't know why I'm using that. It's not a term, but we'll go with it. A single header at Gateway. You know, Maybe the, those are some points that he wouldn't be grabbing since there wasn't the double opportunity at both. Yeah, we'll see. But those are the kinds of things I look back at and go, huh, a Pato, right? This kid's fourth in the championship. Texas was, it was okay. It wasn't great for him. Finished 12th. But since then, I mean, he's had one fortunate break that I can think of due to timing of a caution. Been murdered once, at least, because of the timing of a caution. But, you know, this is a kid that on the road course at IMS, eighth, not great, but good, road America, right, huh? I mean, uh, kid strong all weekend pole as well. Realized that he got chased down by Rosenquist, but another eighth, then a second fourth at Iowa to open there. things went a little sideways on the second Iowa race, but this kid's showing himself to be a bit of an all rounder, right? Maybe he's someone we can count on to surprise. I like where things are heading been. And for, Part of me wonders what future calendars could look like in this capacity. Uh, could more double headers just amid a normal calendar? No COVID. No. Just how are we going to put the year together? Uh, could they look at doing a couple more double headers? Is that the way we get more oval racing back into IndyCar? Does Iowa just stay a double header? Does Gateway maybe stay a double-header? I jokingly suggested the Indy 500-500, a double-header there. Um, Nonetheless, these are just things that I wonder. If you can add in all the stuff that has been lost in the calendar, throw in a couple of more oval races as well, maybe the calendar each year starts to really favor the all-rounders more instead of those who maybe usually the trend we see they don't take really cotton onto ovals crazily uh, for the road racing specialists but they do over deliver on road and street courses and therefore it kind of averages out so i like where it's headed man uh we are going to more schedule questions here steve grinstead now that they're five versions of the schedule any over under and how many more changes are coming again i think maybe one uh i have zero knowledge like, I'm not giving you some, you know, super hidden background, top secret thing about St. Petersburg. I don't know. There's nothing that I know about it, but I just know that with how things are popping off here in my home state of California and how things have been popping off for a while in Florida, knowing that St. Pete is a little ways out, couldn't tell you. Do things get better and the race is held, or do things get worse and it doesn't? I don't know. But it's certainly of all the races remaining the one that stands out as being one to not book anything that you can't get a refund on um You also mentioned with the f one cancellation or North American tour uh can could or should any car consider heading to Austin or Mexico well no uh the Austin thing. Yeah. Uh we've raced there once the audience was better than we usually see for non F1 non Moto GP but it wasn't great. Uh part of me wonders if the deal for IndyCar to race at Texas uh without fans was done as part of a yeah, we'll maybe just focus on you guys here at Texas Motor Speedway when we go to Texas uh for now on. I don't know. Uh go to Mexico Uh, again borders crossing covid quarantine uh that's probably not much of an option right now steve but i would love to go to uh autodromo hermanos rodriguez that would be awesome uh tony chef 20 from reddit uh says why instead of doing double headers at gateway mid ohio after the cancellation of the west coast races couldn't IndyCar visit a couple of ovals that NASCAR has, like Kansas or Kentucky, just for a change of pace. Says, I do enjoy Mid-Ohio and Gateway. I just feel like this would be a decent time to experiment. I hear you. Can't argue in the why not play around and experiment side. I would suggest... And, Ryan, you have a question here about uh, Kentucky asking for consideration. Um... I would say this is probably more a case of, of ride with those who've been ride or die with you. And, I of course, I'd love to go play at some tracks that are underserved like a Kansas or Kentucky. But if we're talking about the people that IndyCar executed contracts with for 2020, coming back to Kevin Savory from Green Savory Promotions, They've had two of the four races they promote canceled. Texas, uh, Texas, good Lord, Toronto and Portland. you got to believe that's a pretty big kick in the nuts financially. So they own Mid-Ohio. They also do St. Pete, as I mentioned. Well, if you're looking for ways to work with the ones that work with you and that are on your team and have been all along, and you know in particular... the the green savory folks have taken a big hit financially. Uh, You try and overserve at mid Ohio and say, Hey, whatever we can do, we're already going there. So that's easy. Uh, We don't have to figure out new contracts with a circuit like a Kansas or Kentucky. The other thing too, again, just overstating the obvious, uh, NBC sports is scheduled to be at mid Ohio and gateway. That's already on the books. Lights are booked. Uh, everybody knows what they're doing. Having to see if you can get NBC Sports to do something totally different that's not on their calendar by going to a Kansas or a Kentucky or wherever, um, you know, then promoting it, having enough time to promote it. Where do you put it on the schedule? Uh, again, I know mid-September is now a void, but still. Do you consider six weeks enough time to get people interested to go in the midst of a pandemic? Just saying the things I would be thinking about if I was having to do the calendar. So mid Ohio has been ride or die natural place to double up drivers. I think are going to be looking like overcooked pasta noodles getting out of the cars <laughs> after the second race. Cause it's the most physically demanding of anywhere that we go uh so that'll be interesting and then gateway i mean just saying the um the gold standard chris blair and his team among indycar promoters doing what they've done at gateway worldwide technologies raceway at whatever i never remember all the sponsor related stuff but uh the wwt not the wwe but the wwt at gateway I mean, they're just the best, right? Seriously. John Bomarito, uh, as a sponsor, has been just transformational. Uh, Chris Blair, his whole team there, no joke. Just really acknowledging the thing that many have acknowledged for a couple of years now, they are amazing. John Biskey, uh, their head of promotions there, PR and comms and whatnot, or bishy. I apologize, John. My brain is farting more, more than usual. Those folks are amazing. So, if we're talking about, well, where else would we double up? That's Ride or Die with Gateway. So, you say, hey, we're going to try and overserve our fans there. This is exactly what IndyCar should be doing in this strange year where some of their partners are either taking financial hits or who knows if they'll be able to have fans uh, at the races. Whatever it is, just make sure you take care of the ones who take care of you. What I like, Tony Chef 20 is the thought of, hey, Kansas or Kentucky, or Kansas and Kentucky. Let's talk about 2021. Uh, Ryan, you mentioned the thing about Kentucky. Uh, Yeah, I love that I've been there, I think, twice, three times. I don't know how many times I've been there, but it's been a long time, but I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, Sean Olmstead says for you and Robin Miller. Well, thanks, Sean. Uh, Robin's not here, though. So it's just me. Uh, What's going to happen for September, if anything? Um, Well. I know that there's some IMSA races that are pretty cool and other things, but since this is an IndyCar show and in all all seriousness, I don't know. That's a great question. I did spend a little bit of time on the phone with Jay Fry today. We are meant to speak again tomorrow, and I am going to write what happens in September and see if I can get an answer for you, Sean. And I don't know if it will fit into something I'm writing, but if not, I'll uh, try and drop it into uh, an upcoming show. Great question, though. I have no idea. Maybe sleep? I'm not sure. Uh, You also said, also, have you ever heard of Memphis International Raceway? Would that be a place uh, as a viable option as it's a great track? I think I've heard of it. I don't know if it would be a viable option. Uh, I guess it depends on its FIA rating. And, yeah. So, heard of it? Yes, yes. Ignorant to say more than that, yes, as well. Uh, Chapin 17, hey there. Uh, this was sent in, I think, before the uh, schedule adjustment. But uh, after reading your work and reports, um, it seems likely that Laguna Sake will be canceled this year and the Harvest GP will become a double header. Yes, wrote about that last week. Um, as you mentioned, says I know there's nothing they can do, uh, but three races in the same exact layout. Is a bit rich in my view, talking about the Harvest Grand Prix. says, I know back in the good old USAC days, it seemed like they'd race at Milwaukee, Trenton, and Phoenix, uh, combined 15 times in a season, but the IMS road course provides a few different layouts, and I hope at least one of the races is run on a different layout. For example, running the track in reverse like MotoGP did or not having that Mickey Mouse section at the end of the lap and running turn one in the oval in reverse like F1 did, I think it'd be interesting to spice something up on an otherwise pretty bland road course. We are simpatico on this, my friend. Yeah, I, I would love to see them run it in reverse. Do have a loop, a loop de loop, a whoop de whoop. I don't know something. Um, I'm with you. Uh, being honest As I always try to be here on the show, it barely works for me going there once a year. Get the reason why. Teams are in town more or less for the Indy 500. Most IndyCar teams are based in or around Indianapolis. No travel costs for many teams, not all. Uh, But again, it's it's the home show, right? It's just a home show. It's cheap to put on. It's all those things. It's really easy. I get it. And it's easy to go back and do two more uh, for the Harvest Grand Prix, and who knows, maybe it'll be three more. I'm with you. But uh, it doesn't exactly hold one's attention, at least for me. It doesn't. It's not a super compelling track in terms of drama. And, oh, look at that crazy pass. The back straight heading into, I forget what it is. What is it turn seven, turn five? The really long back straight... Where they make the left, like um, that, you see some mistakes and some ambition going wrong there. Turn one, of course, at the start and restarts can be the place where the golden bowling ball award is uh, gets awarded. It's just not, yeah. So I'm with you. I don't know what the answer is. I'm making another note here where you guys are powering the questions and I'm asking. I am S. R C changes H G P question mark. So I'm going to ask with you that Mickey mouse, as you mentioned section leading on to the front straight yeah, it really does in many cases, kill overtaking. Uh, if someone knows that the person behind is somewhat close, they're going to hit, push to pass and the other person can hit push to pass and they're going to defend and unless one's tires are really worn out compared to the other the pass probably isn't going to happen and yeah the slow corner leading on to the front straight thing very rarely lends itself towards big dramatic fun passes uh at the end of it so especially in the era where the tires are great and the downforce is excellent and and the brakes, more than anything else, are carbon fiber, and you can stop at the last inch. And so, yeah, with you. Hope it happens. Uh, let's go to our pal Sasha Khan, twenty-four. Hey there. Uh, feels like haven't heard from you in a little while. If I have, just please continue to lend whatever grace to my mental uh, state. Uh, with the addition of the Harvest Grand Prix. It obviously adds another racer to it, the same track as GMR Grand Prix. Not that it would ever happen. Uh, But what what would happen if IndyCar required teams to run the super speedway wings instead of the road course wings? I assume higher speeds into turn one, but would the current brakes be able to last the whole race? I believe he touched on this one or two years ago in the podcast, but I couldn't find that episode. Uh, Sasha goes on to say, I enjoy additional variables such as rain, she also says hashtag me personally believes 2019 was the best Grand Prix at IMS or even an inverted field. When there are multiple races at the same track. Uh, yeah, again, I love all this. If this weren't what the penultimate weekend of the year, as it stands right now, I love the idea of the inverted thing, but trust me, the folks who are, you know, uh, leading ish, the championship would be crying loudly because unless they just in- intentionally fumble qualifying. Um, you know, or they do it based on reversing the results from race one. Uh then all of a sudden you've got championship leaders having to judge where they might finish so they have a non brutal start in race two. Yeah. If this were towards the beginning of the year, yeah, that'd be a lot of fun to throw in. The part about the super speedway wings, I don't remember what I said before. Be prepared for me to contradict whatever I said, because you know, that's just a thing. Um I think it'd be it'd be it'd be fun, but briefly fun. So with the speedway wings, they're still making some downforce, but not a ton. And so where this gets fun, as you mentioned, is on the straights, because we go significantly faster. Uh, they would indeed need to brake much sooner, not only to shed all the extra speed, but also because they would not have the downforce to support late, late braking. So there's those things to consider. So while they might hit a higher top speed, it's not something they could carry into turn one, for example, as deep as they are now. So you'd be seeing the car slow earlier, where I think this would have... A little bit of limited appeal is this would massively affect the driver's ability to be very quick through a lot of the corners and would have to be very sensitive with throttle application. So instead of being able to jump on the throttle and it really being a... a Match between who can be most aggressive on the throttle to accelerate out of a corner and maybe beat the other one to the next corner, I think you'd see a lot of drivers being very gentle and ginger with the throttle because there's just overall not enough downforce being made to really make those rear tires stick to the ground. So I can't tell you what the lap times would be, but I think in the places where if you've been to the GP and, and seen the cars up close running, there's some places where you're like, wow, that's really impressive. And boy, they're flying through here. And look at this and that. Well, we'd get some really amazing car control. And you'd be able to see drivers, you know, sawn at the wheel to keep the things under control because there wasn't isn't nearly enough downforce to give them that comfort of the thing just sticking but the byproduct is also the speeds in the corners uh, really coming down considerably. So lower speed into the corner after the done braking, waiting longer to get on the throttle hard, being very soft. And then I think it would be <laughs> what comes to mind. And I apologize, I'm forgetting if there's an exact name for it, but seen like some of those i think it was like a brady bunch episode or lord knows what but one of those kind of backyard family challenge things where the person's trying to run holding an egg on a spoon and whomever crosses to the other end fastest wins but so what you end up getting is folks no one runs it's everyone kind of shuffling their feet quickly because if they're too forceful with their motion the egg falls off the spoon and it breaks and they lose it just feels like it'd be the Harvest Grand Prix of trying to carry spoons on an egg thing because you wouldn't really see anybody being able to run hard and charge. It'd be a lot of worry and fear that they would spin and crash and take each other out. So think about Oliver Askew halfway through the GMR Grand Prix with proper road course wings on the vehicle and just tires, especially the rears, that were kind of sort of worn out and didn't have a ton of grip to offer. So a guy carrying more than adequate downforce managed to spin in the middle of the corner coming onto the front straight, not at an insane speed number at that point either. Even there, uh, he did not have enough downforce uh, grip in the rear tires, but the grip and downforce combo is not enough to make his car stick. So imagine cutting that downforce in more than half. Oh yeah. It'd be a, it wouldn't be the loudest race we've ever heard. Cause there'd be a lot of time spent off throttle. So, but I do love the idea of it, Sasha, just from a driver skill standpoint. And I don't think you'd see anything different than we would in a normal race. All the best drivers are going to be up front and all the not best drivers are not. I think it would just accentuate, heavily accentuate the uh, difference between the best up front and the rest. Because without that super ample downforce, that comforting blanket of air pulling the car to the ground, yeah. Yeah. You would get to see what makes a, name your favorite driver, Pagano, Power, Newgarden, Dixon, Rosenquist, whatever, Hunter Ray, Rossi. You'd really get to see what distinguishes them from the others. You might also admittedly get one or two where you go, "Ooh, look at you. <laughs> now that's pretty cool to see you jump up here and do your thing. All right, where are we going next here uh yeah i'll go a little bit longer try to get to uh one hour on the clock it's ten fourteen p.m here so i might get yelled at pretty soon and deservedly so uh cade fulling mp i remember hearing there were talks with watkins glenn about a possible return uh it says with coda more than likely gone is there any possibility watkins Glen will be added to keep the number of permanent road courses the same if not watkins Glen, heard any rumors about any new tracks being added for next year would say from what I have heard, Cade might be a little bit early to dive into this with any real like, oh boy, this one's coming or such and such. What I would guess, and I'm gonna write this question down too. Thank you all for doing my job for me. Uh, I think there's gonna have to come a time, somewhat soon, but maybe not a huge rush. Uh, for IndyCar to talk with. I don't know whether it's NASCAR, IMSA, Moto America, uh World Challenge, whatever. Trans Am, SVRA, it, it it's gonna be time here somewhat soon to try and talk with some other significant or fun or emerging championships that are not in the immediate IndyCar family and say, hey, so we've played around a little bit, maybe shared a venue or two this year that we wouldn't have, but we've done because of Corolla. Um, What are some places we might do that next year? Just assuming everything's back to normal, but what are are some of the ways we can do this together and have fun? So your note here about Watkins really stands out. Boy, would that not be a perfect IndyCar slash IMSA weekend or IndyCar NASCAR or NASCAR, IndyCar, whatever it is. Got to believe that there's a reason for some of these series to think about working together on a serious basis once or twice a year if they weren't previously and maybe adding one or two more if they already were. So over-serving fans. I've mentioned that a couple times. I don't mean beer, although some of you would love if that was the case. Hell, I would too. Um, Overserving fans saying, hey, this is your ticket for the weekend and you get way more than you normally do. That just seems like a really good approach. Not just this year, that's obvious, but uh, just going forward for the next year or two as well. uh, We need to make sure that if folks are coming out to support us, dang it, we are are making them walk away going, holy cow. (laughs) They could have charged me double. Or triple, And that's the value that I felt. Uh, going to go to our pals, Ross Porter. How you doing, Ross? And Daniel Summersgill. How you doing, Daniel? This MP, the most recent schedule revision with more double headers add, uh, added has me really feeling for the crew members involved. I feel like these 24 to 48-hour thrashes teams are enduring are only going to increase lapses in judgment and mistakes. For hashtag me personally, anything past 24 hours on the clock is downright dangerous. What's your take? Also, what is the longest time awake you've spent to get a car ready or repaired for an event? All the best to you and yours. Thank you, Ross. I'm with you. Uh, especially heat of summer. Again, if we're talking fantasy schedule and we're just going to pretend Corolla never existed and we're just trying to think of how we can have fun and spice up the schedule, I would say, cool. If we're going to do double headers, let's try and get uh one or two of them done before may when in theory wherever we might go it's not going to be blazing hot we're not going to be wearing out the people on pit lane um totally agree with you with recovery time i think that's a big thing to think about um a big thing to think about and indycar has i mean they've made done some cool things like at iowa uh condensing qualifying into one session now, granted, folks were still worn out by the end of the second race, but at least that was another session they did not have to do and could, in theory, spend that time resting. Um, I'm with you, and I know the series is—they've received the input that, of course, we're here to support you as teams, but uh, we need you to really think about us a little bit more and continue to think more about us so we can do this. For the longest time I've been awake... Uh, to get a car ready or repaired for an event, there's a time a guy barrel rolled my scion t c endurance race car in two thousand eight where trying to think of when we went to sleep after that um i don't know. I might have been up for thirty plus hours thirty five maybe um I had a couple of those. I mean, every any race car mechanic uh, has been through a number of those. I know for sure been through many of those. Fortunately, some of them aren't standing out right now. Um, but yeah, I think that one, if we're talking most recent, yeah, that was brutal. Uh, but we did come back and finish, I don't know, like third in class uh, in a 25-hour race. So that was kind of fun uh in open wheel yeah we've had uh some of those <clears throat> some of those happen as well junior open wheel i remember what i think one year at uh laguna seca greg ray um just battered the live and bleep out of uh our ralt rt40 atlanta car uh during the indycar weekend and that was a very late night um might have heard me mention this before. Hey, Rocky, as he meows and complains behind me. One of my favorite quotes uh, was from Stefan uh whose nickname was the Dome Doily. Um, he worked with Genoa before I did. He'd been around for a while. Super good guy, super talented guy. Uh, I think it was the 1990 event at Laguna. Again, coincidentally, Laguna. Uh, might have been the 1990 race could have been 91 um I don't remember who it was that crashed uh, for the team this is Geno again and with atlantics but it was the the true uh, all-nighter and his quote uh, i guess the next day talking about how much time it took and how much effort it took to repair the car and get it ready you know maybe this was a friday night friday after late afternoon crash and then get it ready for Saturday for the race or whatever. Um, whatever time they left in the morning, uh, his quote was something along the lines of: "In terms of how much rest he got, was um, we were able to leave the track, go back to the hotel, take a shower, and come and come back just in time to feel really horrible." So, yeah, uh, those are the luxuries where you get to go back to the hotel. And then wipe a bunch of grease and grit and dirt and whatever off yourself in the shower. And if you get to go to bed, that's a real blessing. (sighs) I'll tell you though, and this is not a, oh, woe is me. It's just sharing. The staying up is actually almost better because if you lay down, even if it's just 30 minutes sleep, uh, I just can tell you the times that I've had to do that. You wake up feeling absolutely shattered it's just, <laughs> it is, it's worse than just trying to stay up. And it's one thing, and granted, there hits a point, there comes a point where you hit a wall, where you're so exhausted, where you kind of can't stay up. Um, and then nodding off a little bit, you know, maybe you do that a little bit, but still the get, actually stopping, shutting down, and getting 30 minutes of sleep, and then, then getting back up. Oh, man, uh, that's just, I don't know why, but that's just, add even worse so yeah um i think the longest yeah i think 30 to 35 hours might be the longest ross thanks for asking daniel says with portland going to cancel there'll now be five races as well as any 500 qualifying um in practice in 22 days in august given the likelihood of high temperatures at most tracks is this asking too much of drivers and mechanics just to get a meaningful season done yeah it is daniel the one thing that's a little bit beneficial slight very slightly beneficial okay is provided things go okay at mid ohio and we are talking destroyed race cars and calamity and teams again getting a half hour of sleep or none at all it's going to be a grind it's going to be grueling there's no way that changes they then Practice starts at Indy on Tuesday uh, after Mid-Ohio. So what, I forget what the timing is, but it's like 30, 36 hours after um, Mid-Ohio uh, practice starts at Indy. And I believe there's ROP and some other stuff going on. So, But nonetheless, for some teams, it's going to be a really quick turnaround. The vague positive is assuming there are no calamities at mid Ohio and assuming there are no immediate calamities at Indianapolis and in practice the days aren't brutal. They shouldn't be brutal. I'm not saying they're short, nor, nor am I saying they're easy, but you know, the, we don't hit the track till, you know, 11, a, 11 a.m. basically most days. Running ends at 6. You'll see most people come in around 8 o'clock, 8.30. Could be a little bit earlier. Every team has their own preference, but I think you're going to see a little bit more flexibility here, right? Not saying they're going to be coming in at 10, but could it be 8.45 or 9? Depending on the day, maybe. Uh, Could there be some intelligent, you know, more intelligent planning with run lists, right? Hey, are we going to, try and do a million things today, or are we going to try and really hyper-focus on the things that we believe are going to work and maybe leave ourselves some time to experiment a little bit afterwards? I think you're going to see teams just being more... (sighs) having more intent in their actions compared to just playing and experimenting and uh, running every single lap possible. Again, can't say that across all teams, but I think you'll find that there'll be more teams than probably ever being very, very intelligent and having great intent behind what they do. And hopefully that'll lead to a little bit more downtime for the teams. Uh, You'll see most crews out by seven or eight at the latest. Uh, could we have a situation where teams maybe say hey instead of having you here late tonight to do everything we're going to try and get you out of here and please go home and go to bed <laughs> right you can save the club for september since we're not doing much but please go home and get rest give your body rest and nourishment and we'll see you tomorrow morning at eight maybe 7 45 but it just spend more time trying to freshen yourself so that you can come in in the morning and maybe button up some things for half hour an hour that we we'd normally do the night before we go you know at night before we go home my guess is we're going to see more of that daniel i know that i'm certainly going to be doing a story or two about stuff like this just trying to get a feel from teams about what they're doing to adjust because we expect it to be hot We know that teams are coming in from mid-Ohio, kind of, sort of, worn a bit. And, yeah, you do have to think about the folks putting on the party. All right, Um, just a little bit past an hour here, an hour and five. I think what I'm going to do, because I am halfway through this page, is knock this stuff off, which is actually going to make, Resuming and finishing the show tomorrow a little bit easier. Uh, so, going to knock through these very quickly. Mr. Clams. I don't know if I've had a question from you before, Mr. Clams. So, thank you. India is just around the corner, but the entry list still has some holes. So, I was hoping you could shed some light on the rumored and unconfirmed entries. Dragon Speed and Ben Hanley. Uh, Dragon Speed has filed an entry. Ben Hanley. Sure, any driver has not been listed know that last year there was the entry for Ben at three races. He was also entered in the season opening race at St. Petersburg was there ready to go. Uh, would say that this team has been affected by COVID like many others in terms of sponsors and funding. So I would be surprised if Ben is the driver, if no sponsorship is found. If it truly relies on a funded driver, that is not Ben Hanley. So he's not a money guy. And so if Dragon Speed ends up needing money, I would say it will not be Ben. Dry Reinbold and Jerry Hildebrand, you ask? Indeed, it is Jerry Hildebrand. I called our brother JR yesterday while sitting in my wife's physical therapy session and said, hey, I'm trying to wrap up my first... Projected Indy 500 entry list story and they still haven't confirmed you. Is everything okay? And he said, yep, all's good. Uh, not sure why. Hasn't been officially publicly confirmed, but yep, all's good. So there you go with JR. Uh, JR is good to go. Uh, Top Gun and RC Enerson. Well, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I'd call RC and ask, But when I tried to talk to him the last time, he didn't return my call and then called Top Gun and told them I tried to speak with him, which, again, I'm like, all right, dude. Uh, If I could call, name the championship-winning IndyCar driver and ask them a question. Um, I don't know why it should be hard to call a guy trying to ask questions to hopefully write a story that might be positive about you trying to get back into IndyCar, but again, it's a free world, dude. Don't answer whatever calls you want. So I can't really tell you here, Mr. Clams. I know Top Gun has expressed interest in buying the equipment uh, from a team to be their own team. Uh, I've heard that after giving a number, being given a number, they did not call back. So who knows? Maybe they're talking to another team about getting their stuff. Uh, I have no idea and no disrespect to the folks trying to put that together, but I think I've written all the stories I'm going to write and spend all the time on the phone. I'm going to spend until we see that they have both filed an entry, have a car, either their own or in partnership with another team and RC or any other driver is in it and actually real and in a garage at Indianapolis and even better on pit lane and under its own power. Um, Robin Miller gives me a lot of crap about having written the amount I've already written, uh, about the team, which again, uh, I truly hope they become real and they are on track and RC who is super talented and who sh- I would love to see in a full-time entry with any quality team. Um, I fingers uncrossed everything uncrossed. I want nothing more than these folks to be real because it'd be great for IndyCar. I can't answer your question though. Cause I'm just not going to ask. It's on them to prove to the world that they are real and to do the things they say they're going to do. So, can't tell you about them because uh, I don't know because uh, I've I've put in enough of my time there. Uh, David Bird, the Bird family, and James Davison uh, spoke with our pal Mister Bird and texted multiple times yesterday. Did confirm that they are not in a position to fund an entry as they have, uh, been COVID affected as well. Big downturn in business. Therefore the money to do big Indy 500 entry, not a thing did mention that if there's a way to help James get into a car, there's some assumptions here. Does it mean a little bit of sponsorship or who knows what else? Uh, yeah, James is their guy coming back to the ride or die. I love the relationship between bird and James And James, is he might not have a lot of friends uh, on pit lane in terms of drivers, but there's no question that that dude knows how to stand on the throttle. So I don't have an answer yet on the bird side. know that they won't have their own individual entry. I know that David's working to see if he can come up with a bit of a mashup of teams and opportunities and whatever. He's the kind of guy who will keep pushing and keep fighting. And if there is a deal to be made to get James in the Indy 500 within his family's means, he will do it, proven it. The guy is is polar opposite of the previous team we mentioned. The guy is as real as it gets. I've got all the respect in the world for him and his family. Uh, So, yeah. And also, just looking at the reaction to that stupid little, you know, no words story that I wrote about them not doing the 500 as their own entry, it's really pleasantly surprised to see how many folks shared it and really seemed to react to it. Uh, just tells you how much that uh, the Bird family and our favorite crazy Australian, well, after willpower, uh, James Davison has resonated with folks. Uh, last two questions here on Teams. Mr. Clans, uh, Carlin racing and their second entry. I would position that as the realist of all of them to happen of the ones that you've mentioned, have a car it's fully arrow screened and ready to go. I know of a couple of drivers that are talking to them. Uh, I know that cause I've spoken with those drivers, uh, haven't mentioned them by name, nor would I, but I, I think there's something there. Um, Hunkos you mentioned, spoke with ricky yesterday uh his one of his cars he says is due back soon from aerodyne getting the tub modified to carry the aero screen um timing going to be really tough for them uh, i don't know if i put it in the little story i don't think i did i don't know i don't remember it's been a day how would i remember uh ricky mentioned that boy if the 500 were pushed back to october i'd feel way better about our chances of being there but if it's august uh, it might be a little bit tough and they have no sponsorship no driver lined up i know that i know of at least two drivers that are talking to them but you know like dragon speed they need a budget uh we know that bird would need a budget we know that Carlin car needs a budget. We know Hunko's car needs a budget. So um, provided money comes from somewhere, whether it's a driver, whether it's a driver and a sponsor, whether it's a driver and a sponsor and IndyCar, which has helped some teams in the past when they had a need to get to at least 33, which they're facing right now. They're two cars short. Um, Coin as well, their third entry that Bird and Davison won't be occupying. That's also, I'd say, right with Carlin, um, the most real in terms of easiest to plug someone in and go. Spoke with their team manager, Terry Brown, on Monday. Super good guy. And he mentioned, you know, hey, we don't know. I'm not sure it's going to run, but if there was a need, it's a rolling chassis that's basically ready to go. Uh, Still got to put the crew together for it, but that's a team that's always ready to run a third car. So... If there's a need, well, let me rephrase it. There is a need, but if there is kind of a hardcore need of like, well, all right, nobody's really been able to get their own deals done to fill in uh grid spot 32 and grid spot 33, uh, I think you're going to see IndyCar getting out the old wallet here to help make that happen. Um all right, Zanardi stickers, another questions here from our pal John Ranjow. Um do you know if any place is selling the hashtag Forza Alex stickers? I do not. Uh, that almost seems like a torontomotorsports.com kind of thing. So maybe our pal Derek Koska can either point you towards something that he's seen or maybe help with uh, getting some made. I don't know. Uh, they have huge hearts at torontomotorsports.com. So that's right up their alley. Um, let's see. You said the more serious question. Uh, wanting your opinion on Mario's comments on Lewis Hamilton? Shame to see a true trailblazer in American motorsports who admits he had his own bouts of prejudice against him while running in America brush off racism and racing and call Lewis militant. Yeah, two things jump out here, John. I wish I could remember the exact quote that I read 10 or 15 years ago that perfectly fits this topic. It was so beautiful. I can only paraphrase it. And it goes something along the lines of, you can't convict a man for his era. Obviously, in today's gender-neutral world, this is not limited to men. can't convict a man or woman for their era. And as I interpreted that statement, or whatever it is that I read that quote, it was referencing something at the time that's basically identical, somewhat identical, to Mario's comments here. And that is, from Mario's era, where most Most of us have our opinions and thoughts and viewpoints formed into something very solid at a younger age. Of course, those things evolve. Those who continue force themselves to evolve, no matter how old they get, those tend to be some of the most awesome people on the planet. But that's not always the case, right? That's not always, as I try and clear my voice, I apologize. That's not always reality. Leave it to me to drink liquid and actually have my voice go more hoarse. What stood out here with Mario's comment was, this is a man who's been on the planet for, what, seven decades? It's a man who's been on the planet for a long time. Grew up in a very different era. Racism was never openly accepted, but it was also rarely for significant stretches of Mario's younger life pushed back against, fought. And so I think in, if we go back to an era where Mario grew up, formed his thoughts and opinions, saw the world, read the world, and then reading what he had to say about Lewis, it doesn't surprise me. And I don't say it doesn't surprise me because I have a low opinion of Mario. Quite the opposite. It stood out to me as one of those don't convict someone on their because of their era. So this is not a defense of Mario I'm about to offer. It's just a parallel because it's the most home-based thing that comes to mind. Some of you might have heard me mention this before on one of the podcasts, and that was my father, born and raised in the Deep South, born and raised, born in 1940 in Arkansas. Farm boy, Deep South. Believe it or not, there weren't a lot of folks who didn't look like him there, and if there were boy They were not treated well at all. As my father told me, and I'll have to take him at his word on this, of the couple of reasons he left home at, I think, 17 or 18, one of them was just the hyper-quadruple racist environment uh, in the Deep South and where he grew up in Arkansas, in his own family, in everything. Moved to Chicago, Um, then moved out to California, met my mom, had me, got married, so on and so forth. So if you think of my father, born in 1940, and where he fits on the racism, being part of the world and and whatnot thing, uh, you could say that this is a man who grew up in the Jim Crow South, knows and knew... Probably saw a lot of the worst things being said. I can't tell you if he saw, you know, hate crimes and other things. I don't know. Uh, he's been gone for 25-ish years, and I, frankly, never thought to ask him. Um, my father was born on February 1st, 1940. Mario born February 28th, 1940. So my dad, 27 days older than Mario. They grew up, call it same time. Obviously, Mario being born in Italy, Italy, emigrating here. His story is well known, but still, came here in his youth, saw what America was, dealt with a lot of racism as an Italian, an Italian-American. Let me come back to my dad real quick here, John, to try and just put this to bed. My dad, being progressive, among those that he grew up with and grew up around in the deep south in california was still pretty damn racist like (laughs) you put him back in arkansas he might be just this ah and there was this white glow around him of divinity and heaven by comparison to the folks he said he could not tolerate and stand and therefore led to him wanting to leave him out here is still pretty racist i remember listening to him try and tell me the difference between n-word people with the hard r and the ga and what makes one one and the other one another one and right i remember listening to that i don't know in my maybe my mid-teens or late-teens, something like that, where I was just like, come on, man, what kind of nonsense and garbage is this? The guy that I've mentioned before who was like my second father, almost a surrogate father because my dad was just gone a lot because of work, or you know, he came home every night but was just gone a lot for many years. A Japanese-American, his wife, Chinese-American, um, my dad... Coming from that mindset of whatever he says just is good in all environments, you know, would say things to George, uh, Obama, that would just have my like my eyes were crossing at like fifteen years old, going what? And here's George, who's more educated than my dad, more successful than my dad, like in every measure of life, more accomplished, more successful, more intelligent. And here's George just kind of trying to not knock out his neighbor. Just sharing here, John, that uh, of his era, growing up in the Deep South, rejecting its racist ways, leaving as soon as he graduated high school, man, the vestiges of prejudice were still really deep compared to the environment and people I grew up around out here. Remember getting just tired. I just had enough one day at the shop when I was probably 19, 20, I don't know, uh, there at the shop with him and him talking about gays. And trust me, he didn't use the word gays. It the it started with an F or a, you name it. Lots of things that just were not cool. And so this, this would have been like 1989, 1990. And I just remember shouting at him which i don't know if i'd ever done before enough stop it all right i'm just saying i know you don't know this because you're not of this current generation but things have changed okay making fun of gay people constantly just any chance to say something mean cutting critical all the right i just had enough and had the first dad you're old i'm not talking you're physically old mentally you're old you're sh- you're truly showing your era enough world has moved on we're in a better more whatever accepting tolerant place please for your sake stop making these gay jokes to any or everybody who will listen because things are changing enough to where what you think is going to be funny to everybody that comes through the door that's now no longer a reality so please stop i didn't get to have a lot more of those type of conversations with him he and my stepmother moved i moved out and yada yada but he wasn't around he was around for a couple more years after that before he died but didn't get to have a whole ton of Additional conversations like that of trying to say, Dad, that era you're from, let's try and unpick more of it and get you up to speed on the world you're living in that you don't know is different from the one that you bookmarked at 20 years old. And think is always there, thereabouts, the same when you set your opinions and viewpoints again at 20 years old or 15 or 25, whatever. This is just what comes to mind with Mario. This is a man speaking from... His mental era. So that's not being critical of Mario I don't mind criticizing Mario. I felt bad. I'm like, oh Mario, come on, brother. But I did not receive it in a way of oh this guy's just hateful and ignorant. To me ignorant is something where you there's a bit of intent behind it. I don't know if that's it, that's how it lands with me. This just stuck as something of oh okay, Mario hasn't really had a chance to think this through and get up to speed with where the world is today and that's not uncommon uh i try and challenge myself regularly on the things that i consider to be facts and ways and correct and all that because i just always want to keep pushing my pushing myself and i guarantee you i fail regularly but it's it's not something that everybody does mario dealt with Racism of his own, which you mentioned, and I know others are aware of. There's a derisive term, slang term for Italians, starts with the letter W. Mario was called that, as I have learned and been told by many who were around in his early days coming onto the scene. Mario's nickname is that derisive term for Italians. And I'm not equating the two, just saying as crazy as it would be to think of a black driver who came up in the 60s to be referred to, who's just called, not by his name or her name, but N-word, and that's just kind of the name that all the rivals said, and it was meant kind of jokingly but also a little jab you a little bit you know stab you a little bit kind of thing but also putting in your place a little bit uh and just that's the word not your name but hey n-word hey w-word uh could be asian pick the pick the thing where you go ah, oh, yeah man uh, that's not a great great uh racist term much less one that becomes the person's name. Whenever you see him, you say, hey, racist term. And then now, all these years later, not in print, not on video, but in private when you see the person or refer to the person. Mario's still referred to by his contemporaries of that era when he came up in the 60s when he made all the relationships and friendships with this driver and that driver and whatever else today to his face but especially you know among themselves he's referred to as that racist term it's not a secret right it's not again this is not like pulling back the cover on some grand whatever like it's just been that way forever the thing that i don't understand that lends to my curiosity with the statements john about lewis hamilton Is in Lewis, you have someone who later in his career, very late in his career, but regardless of the timeline, has decided he's going to take a stand against racism, against whatever form, you know, any and all forms of prejudice, uh, trying to stand up, definitely supporting equality and justice for people of color. We'll just call folks descendants of Africa because it's not just african-american it's english American, whatever dash english american god i'm an idiot uh african whatever again pick whatever country of origin lewis is standing up for people of color in particular black folk and it's not as if he's ever willfully had folks call him the n-word or other things and just kind of went with it and continued the conversation and been happy and Shrugged it off, or yeah, whatever. But this is a case where Lewis is finding his voice in terms of himself, his people, his cause, and he's saying he's not standing for any nonsense. The part that is a little bit conflicting for me, John, that I don't fully get, and I'll ask Mario about the next time I see him in person, not over the phone, but actual man to man, eye to eye, so we can see and feel the tone, and is why. To my knowledge, he has never pushed back against those who just straight up refer to him as a racist Italian term. I realize that there were periods in the world where pushing back probably could have been a pretty hard thing. Could have closed some doors, just play along, and hopefully they'll be nicer, they'll be whatever... There also comes a point where you go, Wow, you are the most powerful race car driver on the planet. You want to talk about the ability to wield that power and say no to the bad or negative things or correct people and say, Don't you ever call me that again. Curious why. Curious why that never happened. And why, when a fellow World Champion, Formula One World Champion, has decided. It's time to stand up and fight back against the things that he feels are wrong on a racial level. There is such a drastically different view uh, or or harsh view of that. So I wonder if Mario's opinion would be different. Something else I'll ask him. If he had, whether it was from the beginning or at some later stage in his career where he was the man and no one was going to mess with him, He pushed back and said, don't play that nonsense with me. Wonder if his opinion towards Lewis's stance would be different if he had taken a stance of his own. I could be totally wrong. There could be a point in time where he took a stand and I don't know about it, but I do know that those, some of those, I can't say all, but some of those, and these are, you know, the legends of legends who raced against him, call him that term to this day never never stood well with me but it's not his life not mine so his era john for sure but also if you think about what lewis has done it's different than what mario did to my knowledge when faced with a similar reckoning with one's origins and standing up for what you believe is right uh cody bray how does not having a 2020 light season impact the 2021 indycar season not having rookies come in with a budget does it make it easier for older drivers to get rides with teams? I'd be very surprised, Cody, if we saw much in the way of changes in terms of the overall grid next year. The lack of a. Well, how's this? I'm not sure what is going to happen in terms of someone with money to graduate to what, right? We expect the Indie Pro 2000 driver to have money to move up to Indie Lights, but. Uh, if we're talking Kyle Kirkwood, who had that million bucks to step up, or million bucks, I'm sorry, the money to step up and race in lights coming off of his Indy Pro 2000 title, uh, what happens? I don't know. I don't know if he takes that amount or is allowed to take that amount and try and get a couple of IndyCar races. I don't know if IndyCar upgrades that to a higher amount to make sure the kid doesn't get lost in the cracks because uh, he's ridiculously good but still needs a you know more development I don't know what comes out of this. Uh, it's a great question, Cody. I think this is going to be better answered once we get closer towards the end of the season, knowing that some kids have stepped down to Indy Pro Two Thousand who are planning on lights. Um, would also say that with those who've moved over to the F three uh, F four stuff, who are you know coming from lights and doing that, you know whether it's the Andretti side, the HMD. Side and such. There's talent, there's intent to move forward. I just don't know if any of them, barring maybe one, maybe two, but maybe one, really looked ready to come out of lights at the end of the season and go to IndyCar next year. So uh, I think in most instances, we might be in a place where a lot of drivers probably find they could. Even if it's going to be a year on the sidelines for most, for the most part, uh, they could use another year in Indy Lights in 2021, uh, just to better better prepare themselves. Uh, JJ Gertler, penultimate question for tonight, Marshall. What can you tell us about Roger Penske's reported interest in Iowa Speedway? Is this adding to the empire or trying to save a track that might otherwise be in shaky ground? Um, I can't tell you from direct knowledge, JJ. I can only tell you what I've heard from inside. Uh, conversations with uh, folks who have spoken uh, with Track and RP. I think it might be the latter. I think there's a little bit of question of overall stability, and if the price is right, well, RP being able to add stability would certainly be a great thing. Um, we're going to close this evening with a fun one from our pal, the Mayor of Mirth, the Minister of Mirth for our show, Lance Snyder. Marshall, hashtag me personally. You heard the LED panels are going to make a triumphant return. Thanks to research from Kanye West, Florida Man, and QAnon. Wants to know if there's any truth to that. Hashtag, you personally, you personally think this could happen. Hashtag, I personally do with the next chassis. I think that Jay Fry and I have a laugh every time it comes up. And I do believe he's probably going to include something in the RFPs for the next chassis. For chassis supplier, or electronic supplier, to come up with an effing solution that can withstand the frequencies and vibrations that are unique to a comparatively light open-wheel car compared to a heavier sporty car, but heavier sporty car that is more softly sprung and dampened and, yeah... Uh, the forces and bouncing and frequencies and just nasty-type loads being put through the last couple of LED panels that cause them to break and short out and whatever, those just are not things that are seen in a sports car or a NASCAR or whatever else. So I know I get questions at least a couple times a month saying, What the hell? IMSA can get it right. Why can't they? Uh it's a different application. It's just diff or ont. Okay. I am saying goodbye for the night. I see that we have ah, a page and a quarter to go when we come back. So actually friends, I think we are not too far from being done. So I might, well, I don't know if I'm going to get this done in two hours, but I'm going to do my best when I pick up tomorrow. All right. We are picking back up here. 8.40 in the morning on Wednesday. I have both cats sleeping to the right. Rosie is snoring. Actually, Rocky is snoring, which is pretty funny. Uh, all right, I've got about 19 minutes to finish up the show here. Then I have to jump on our guest recording with Pato O'Ward and Oliver Askew from Errol McLaren SP. So let's see how far we can rock and roll in the time we have left. Trip Hazard, you are inquiring about... The NASCAR traction compound, whether it can be removed from tracks once it's been applied, yes. Uh, But it's, yeah, it's still not great. Uh, Matt Anderson got a question here about Ferrari Challenge at Indy. This is in the years since the road course has been added to IMS with Formula One, sports cars, vintage cars, motorcycles, even the SCCA National Championships being run there. I can't recall seeing another time. There's been a ceremonial lap around the Speedway Oval like they did with the Ferrari challenge cars last weekend. Correct me if I'm wrong, but with Penske himself driving the pace car, there seems to be an effort by Mr. Penske and Ferrari North America, as well as North American dealers to show support for Ferrari being an Indy car. If so, then the question is, is this a final effort to push them over the edge to a commitment or last ditch effort to salvage the negotiations? I don't honestly know. I could ask Roger and he would not answer because he's a professional businessman and shouldn't answer such things. I can tell you that it certainly looked like they were going over and above Matt to make sure that everyone at Ferrari felt super, super loved and welcome. Uh, I would also say that with Ferrari being as big of a brand as it is worldwide, one of the few automotive brands that seemingly everybody has heard of. It would also just be a smart thing to do promotionally to raise awareness, get more folks to look in at the Speedway, just increase overall awareness about the Speedway, knowing that there are plenty of folks who've been born and have no idea about the Indy 500 or IMS or otherwise. So that would be a really smart thing to do to get more looks, more love, more everything. But I'd also say that knowing how sharp Mr. Penske and the Penske Entertainment folks happen to be in terms of appeasing manufacturers, knowing that Roger's a giant, giant automotive dealer as well, he knows the game. So say there are a couple things being done here that can only help and can only show the willingness to give Ferrari extra love. And they are a brand that Many of us know they're always looking for that extra love to be made to feel super special, if not the most special. So if I'm advising, if I'm suggesting what they might do, boy, they ticked all the box, boxes last weekend, Matt. <clears throat> Let's go to our pal, Carlos Villalobos. It says, MP, does money change hands in sanction fees and such when IndyCar races at IMS. Thanks and thoughts and prayers for you and your wife. Again, I don't know. Uh, That's one of those things business-wise it's hard to get folks to talk about. would just say that while I don't have an answer for this, I do know from firsthand experiences that if IndyCar needs some footage of something that the sister property IMS Productions has... Right, hey, this is the 10th anniversary of something, or the 20th anniversary of something. We could use a one minute clip from that race, or whatever it was, 20 years ago for this thing we're doing. That doesn't go from IMS Productions to uh, truly next door to the IndyCar offices for free. That is billed and paid for. I know that because when there's been times I've asked IndyCar for, hey, I could use a little piece of this for something, uh, it's always had to go up the chain to get approval for someone to say, yes, we'll pay for it, and you can have it or no. Uh, so yeah, I can just tell you, at least in this experience, there's nothing free between businesses, but that was also pre-Pensky Entertainment buying everything. So I can't tell you if that policy has changed internally, but I do know that Prior to Roger being there, they were all pretty fond of charging one another for stuff instead of acting like they're all part of the same overall company. Uh, and therefore, let's not invoice one another. Uh, let's see. Let's go to DSNYD500. says, I have no idea why, but I recently thought about the Riley & Scott IRL chassis, specifically the Reebok-sponsored car eliseo salazar Bend during qualifying after showing a lot of practice speed as an indy resident i was rooted for their success do you have any insights on the strengths and weaknesses of their chassis and did they bring any innovation to the table compared to Delara and g-force that would be a yes i know one of the cool things about the car and they did this same era with their prototype the riley and scott mark three that ran in actually a number of championships. Uh, primarily, I think it debuted in IMSA's World Sports Car category. It did a pretty cool thing of separating the springs from the dampers, and that certainly made it uh, a lot easier in terms of setup changes. And, yeah, I mean, that was a, a cool, cool thing that they did I can't tell you a ton about the car. I do need to dig into it deeper. Was there when it was running? I uh, recall some shouting and yelling uh, in relation to, I don't know if it was Salazar's car or Davey Hamilton's, but um, wherever my team was in the uh, Indy Paddock, or in Gasoline Alley in 2000, those guys were directly across the way, and I remember there being a pretty decent shouting match I think after a qualifying run that they'd gotten the gears wrong, possibly inverted the gears, I think, uh, 5th and 6th. So uh, there was big confusion as to why there was such a huge drop in revs from 4th to 5th, when indeed 5th gear was 6th, But um, and the performance wasn't there, and so on and so forth. So, yeah, uh, that, that wasn't super fun. Chassis itself, I did get a chance to look at it when... Trying to think it was the ninety seven maybe uh Charlotte race. It was on display in the paddock, and remember walking over and taking a look at it and just thinking it was uh, pretty cool and interesting and different. Uh was working with a Delara then. I do know the the call it weakness if we're talking Indy five hundred, is the car had too much, I guess you could say root or base downforce Uh, just it seemed to carry a little bit more than the other two chassis and there was a limit as to how much could be taken off both downforce and drag but that same thing is what made the car an absolute monster uh, earlier in the year at phoenix short oval where downforce is certainly going to make a difference and the thing was just a Rocket, but I'm actually due to speak with my good pal Bill Riley here. Uh, what tomorrow, I think, for a Racer Magazine feature on that Riley and Scott uh, prototype chassis. So maybe if I can find some time, I'll do a little bit of a deeper dive with him on the good old IRL chassis. And if we don't find time then, I think it'd just be a fun thing in general to uh, capture here, maybe in podcast form or written form. Robbie Berggren, you've sent this in once or twice. Can you tell us what iconic committee proposal was the one you wanted to see go into production and why? This, for those who don't know about it, there's this really archaic thing that IndyCar did with its previous, previous uh, administration. Um, Looks like we have a thing with a bunch of folks who wanted to try and present the idea of gaving different manufacturers to maybe make the new Indy car. And it seemed like they wanted, uh, Dallara from the outset and that's who they chose. So did this in 20, 2010, maybe 2011. I forget. I flew out for this announcement thing. Uh, sorry. Time <laughs> time is a bit of a fluid thing. Um, for me, Whatever it was, remember seeing the proposals, the renderings of the cars and such. Um, I can tell you that I liked what Swift had to offer, Robbie. I just thought that the base car was pretty darn good, knowing that there were really good routes for what they were doing in uh, Japanese super formula. Um, and speed and excellence seemed to be a big part of what they did. I liked the idea of it not being a Delara. Not because I have anything against Delara, but because it felt like we were at a bit of a tipping point with the economy tanking, with Champ Car going away, with uh, a lot of things narrowing in terms of opportunity. It also felt like, boy, if this were to go to Delara, I think we might be killing off a lot of what's left of the... North American open-wheel manufacturing uh, industry. And by and large, that's indeed what happened. So not Delara's fault. I mean, they put in a bid like everyone else. Theirs was chosen. Just saying here that the expectation all along, Robbie, was everyone knew Delara. Everyone had a long relationship with them. This was a really easy thing to make happen, and they did the thing that would have required some balls and some bravery would have been to look at seriously, look at another proposal. Um, yeah, they went the easy route and they did not get a great car. And it took a lot of time, many years and a lot of dollars. Uh, uh, I can't tell you how many tens of millions of, have been spent by manufacturers on those high downforce aero kits and all kinds of things to try and make the car what it was intended to be from the outset. So super flawed process. would say with today's administration in place, if we could take them back to 2010, 2011, run them through the Iconic Committee thing, and they still chose Dallara, I'm confident that the Dallara that would have come out would have been a dramatically better car because the folks involved on the IndyCar side today really do know a lot more about what's right and what's wrong and could have steered the thing to a a better starting point. Uh, All right, got about five, six minutes left here. Raymond Wong says, uh, all the back of the driver's, uh, you've seen throughout the years. What driver made the best use of their sponsorship airtime for being slow? It says, I used Jay Hill from the 92 Detroit race as an example. While off the pace, his Coke-sponsored car would appear in the background and foreground and TV cameras, finishing a serviceable 13th in his only career start. Uh, the Jay Hill reference, Raymond, is just priceless. Um, I hadn't thought of Jay for a long time. I'd have to go with Randy... Randy, I just wanted to say Randy Lanier. I have no idea why he jumped into a, granted, I love me some Randy Lanier. He's uh, come to know each other and uh, enjoy one another's company. Randy Lewis is who I'm thinking. So before Hiro Matsushita was a bit of a punchline for being the guy who just did not have a lot of aptitude for racing an Indy car and was pretty slow and getting in the way. Well, Although we love ourselves King Hero, Randy Lewis was easily the the standard of reference prior to Hero. And Randy did enough IndyCar races, spent enough time in the car where he, without a doubt, could be there. He just was never super, super good. And... Got in the way a lot. He was excellent at finding sponsors. Uh, Oracle, in particular. You want to talk about big companies. you know. He brought Oracle to IndyCar, and he had Oracle on his cars for a while, or AMP, or the guy was probably, and this, uh, this might also deserve a, another story or podcast or who knows, he's a guy, as I recall, was really the first or among the first to have a connection in Silicon Valley and bring some names that if not really big and whatever it was, 1987 in a short amount of time would go on to be like quadrillion trillionaire massive entities. He just was better at finding sponsors than he was going quickly in an Indy car. And I'm not saying he didn't have a handful of decent finishes, but before hero, the guy that you would hear drivers complain about getting in the way and so on and so forth was Randy Lewis and so he did a great job <laughs> of always being there his car was seemingly always on display somewhere could be him going off and getting beached and camera zooming in on on him stuck in a gravel trap and whatnot but yeah uh, I'd give give Randy Lewis a big thumbs up on getting a lot of promotional mileage without maybe uh, while also getting good fuel mileage. So there you go. All right. Last question for us here. This comes from Takate Renard on Reddit. Says MP from the 1981 Toyota Grand Prix of Long Beach program it says we regret any inconvenience to fans expecting AMA Superbikes as advertised in our early releases and then says in their wisdom, the AMA decided the event was unsafe and scheduled another event elsewhere. The Grand Prix Association officers have therefore decided to stage and promote an event for the exciting sidecars under the of SRA, the Sidecar Racing Association, asks, what's the wackiest support series you can remember at an IndyCar Race? Well, it's been a long time since I've seen sidecars, but those are kind of the craziest, coolest things in the world. If we're talking truly are you kidding me? What is going on here? It would have to be the old SCCA race trucks series, which were, they weren't around for a long time, but, oh, they were fun. They were just so fun. The Renault Alliance cup as well. You know, these little 90 horsepower and a good day things, just the ultimate crap boxes and guys just beating the heck out of each other. Those are a lot of fun. It's always the, the against type things where you go, Well, that doesn't belong, and that's amazing. Um, Probably the race trucks. And that comes to mind this month's issue of Road and Track. One of my colleagues wrote about the uh, race truck series, and just funnily enough, I had tweeted a photo of some race trucks uh, about a year ago from an old issue, I think, of On Track, and one of the editors at Road and Track saw that and was like, oh, well, I didn't know about that we need to write about that. So funny how a stupid tweet from an old magazine leads to a full feature article about it uh, in the latest issue. I just loved them because you look at it and go, what these are, and we're not talking the big trucks. This is the kind of seventies, eighties, early nineties, four cylinder, um, Nissan's and Jeeps and Fords and Mazdas, just these small little pickup trucks, not the, uh, you know, full-size ram whatever and ford f-150s but just their little tiny cousins no horsepower no real handling but some pretty serious names that climbed into them and also the manufacturer that got into them is just amazing i mean really truly amazing to see all of the manufacturers diving into this and having their own kind of private party and Totally oblivious to everything else going on during the weekend. Indy cars, yeah, whatever. We're going to do our thing and just love it. And the best thing to close here, they promoted the crap out of it. They bought so many ads to promote a win and whatnot. They really did something great there. So I'd love to have them back. Uh, it was so crazy and so weird. Long before, you know, This is years before NASCAR had their truck series. This is decades before stadium super trucks it's just this wacky thing where for fans had no idea they existed i can't imagine what the reaction was being at indycar weekend they were on f1's bill uh, when they would come to town at detroit and such just see these trucks pull out and like what this is a series ah so much fun so thanks for asking thank you all for the great questions as usual also want to say thank you to cooper tires the justice brothers Toronto Motorsports.com, and bell racing helmets usa ah oh, this is a lot of fun y'all look forward to next week's show i am marshall pruitt this is our little marshall Pruitt podcast we're almost 900 episodes if you haven't visited check out marshallpruittpodcast.com where we have every single one for you to check out and enjoy and other than that we'll speak to you next week